0: I think it's also important when you look back on it, how little we really knew at the beginning. We did not understand how the, the virus was transmitted at all. We did not understand the importance of the PPE and we certainly had no testing.
1: Welcome to This is Rural Health, a podcast from the California State Rural Health Association. The CSRHA is focused on ensuring that the needs and voices of rural Californians are expressed and heard and is continually working toward improving the quality and length of life of rural Californians. This podcast like the CSRHA brings together leaders in rural healthcare with policy advisors, community leaders, and other forward thinkers to gain a better understanding of what is happening across today's rural health ecosystem. Each week, you'll hear the unique perspectives of industry and community leaders and how they're finding innovative solutions to the challenges of a rapidly changing and increasingly complex healthcare industry. Next, I'd like to introduce our panel moderator, Michelle Schneider. She is the secretary of the CSRHA and she's got over 15 years of experience in communications, nonprofit, strategy, partnerships, as well as fundraising and sponsorships with global brands and celebrity and talent relations. She is currently the Executive Director of the Western Los Angeles Dental Society. Thank you for joining us, Michelle. I will now turn it over to you for today's panel.
2: Thank you so much, Scott, and good morning to everyone. This morning, we're talking about charting a course for rural resilience, best practices for turbulent times. Our panel today will share strategies and resources for accelerating the shift to a more integrated and sustainable rural health system, including patient care, COVID protocols, and discuss the path toward resilience. And now I would like to introduce our esteemed panelists. Sarah Cherry provides direction and leadership for Azalea Health's Ambulatory, excuse me, RCM service operations. Ms. Cherry has over 10 years of experience in healthcare industry and specializes in rural health clinic and federally qualified health center billing and revenue optimization. Next we have Jim Suver. Jim has served as CEO of Ridgecrest Regional Hospital since 2009. He has over 35 years of experience in health system administration, And he's a founding board member of the National Rural Accountable Care Organization, the first accountable organization in California focusing only on rural providers. Amy Greeter is a senior vice president at Coker Group with specialized expertise in business strategy, mergers and acquisitions, and hospital service line development. Ms. Greeter works with nonprofit and for profit hospitals and health systems of all sizes and larger single and multi specialty physician practices to achieve their strategic and tactical goals. And Craig Cornette is the president and CEO of the California Association of Health Facilities, a nonprofit trade association representing skilled nursing facilities and intermediate care facilities for people with intellectual disabilities. Thank you all for joining us. Okay, well, let's begin with something that's impacting us all, COVID and COVID protocols that are working for your agency. So let's start with Sarah. Please tell us what specifically your organization does and when it became clear that COVID was in your community, With that, what protocols has your agency put in place that you
3: plan to keep? Yes, good morning, everyone. Um, So Azalea Health is a full electronic health record company based out of Atlanta, Georgia, although we are nationwide. Um, I actually live in Sacramento. um, And we also provide revenue cycle management services. So we have uh, an EHR for ambulatory as well as hospital side Um, And so what we saw really is, of course, with us being nationwide, we saw that, you know, COVID hit a lot of our customers immediately. And so one thing that it wasn't necessarily, you know, COVID outbreaks, it was the lack of, you know, your patients were staying at home, uh, your clinics were kind of closing, especially at the end of March, you know, in April, visits really dropped. And so, what we did was we immediately enabled our telehealth application to where we really tried to encourage our providers to practice telehealth to try and fill in those gaps during that time, and we we immediately saw you know a huge uh, that it, it made a huge impact um, in healthcare. And so for rural health clinics, it was a little difficult, and mainly because, of course, Medicare historically has said that, um, you know, RHC cannot be a distant site. And so, you know, it was playing this limbo game of is Medicare going to uh, reverse that decision or what's going to happen. So RHC is kind of, you know, it wasn't an immediate conversion like other clinics. They had to wait to see what was going to happen with CMS. And so Medicare did eventually release that, that RHCs could be a distant site. Uh, the patient could be in their home, and that kind of alleviated that burden, um, and Medicare came to follow. And of course, in true Medicare fashion, they did not release how to fill it. Uh, That came later as well. So with RHCs, it was a very unique challenge um, to where they were facing. They needed to provide, you know, healthcare services, uh, but they were trying to go through all these different barriers. One thing I've seen um, it, it's throughout this all is that it has come very, uh, become very clear that telehealth is the future. Um, patient, you know, in-person patient care is always going to be huge um, and vital. But what we've seen is that during COVID, we could really take care of our patients and provide patient care um, via telehealth. And that a lot of patients really preferred it and were open to it. And so we have several clinics who started doing telehealth. Um, you know, we had clinics who didn't and they, you know, closed their doors for a period of time they, uh, you know, reduced hours, that it really had significant, uh, uh, you know, problems to them to where uh, our other clinics who implemented it were able to really keep on going and thriving. So what I see is the future is that telehealth is here to stay, I think that we're going to see more and more of this, you know, throughout the years. I think that for RHCs, you should assume that, you know, Medicare isn't going to reverse this. I can see that they're going to continue down this path. So now it's really just getting a hold of the reimbursement, making sure that, you know, gets straight. I know the National National Association of Rural Health Clinics is really pushing to get your all-inclusive rate um, for those telehealth visits. Um, but I really see that's kind of where, you know, COVID brought that to life, and now it will continue pushing telehealth. Thank you, Sarah.
2: Jim, what about you?
4: Well, um, I, I agree uh, that probably telehealth is here to stay. And that was one of the first things we operationalized. And I was so impressed with my team that they brought on telehealth uh, so quickly. Um, we we uh, were very fortunate in our community to have a very, very low um, infection rate. And we've continued to do that. But one of the other things we, Uh, immediately implemented in addition to the telemedicine was certainly um, our monitoring or security adjuncts, whichever you want to call it, we invested in the uh, temperature screening um, iPads that we mounted at all of our clinics. Um, And we uh, obviously uh, changed some of our physical layouts in our clinics, blocked off chairs, put in uh, um, placemats so that people didn't do it. We um, had a little bit different reaction in the community about telehealth. Um, Some of our seniors in particular didn't like it at all. Um, Our providers liked it, um, but one of the the challenges we had is because we are responsible for so much care in our community, we found that many people were not coming to the doctor when they should. And throughout this whole COVID thing, we have probably invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in what we have done for community outreach through social media through instagram through twitter webpage, podcast um, videos that we post on youtube letting people know if you're sick please don't do nothing despite the covid virus um, and so even though that we, we we've done the telemedicine we added uh screening where appropriate we added monitors uh we have continued to fight to get people that need to come in uh to to actually be seen. Um, This was fortunate for us that we also uh, um, own the local ambulance, because in many cases our ambulance drivers were doing, and paramedics and EMTs rather, were actually getting 911 calls for essentially a checkup. I'm scared to go to the doctor, Um, am I okay? And the the paramedics did a great job for us getting people in that needed to do it, um, that needed to get in, um, or take them to the emergency room or just making people feel more calm that they were um, okay. But I wholeheartedly agree telemedicine is here to stay and certainly the reimbursement is something that we uh, you know, want to look for. Um, and I don't want to transfer your next question, but our ability to to totally keep our volume up was really uh, related to how much PPE we had at one time. And there were times where we were very, very short of PPE, like Maybe 15 days on hand, um, and that was with a low infection rate in our community and very few hospitalizations. And so, even though we knew we could probably do more in our clinics, we had to balance that uh, with the fact that we needed to leave enough PPD to handle a surge if indeed uh, that happened to us. But I think you know one of the things we learned from this is all of this, all of the media that we got out there was very, very critical to balancing our clinic workload. Um, and letting people know there were alternatives.
2: Thank you. Amy, let's go to you next.
5: Sounds good. Well, let me say that one of my favorite people of all times is Patrick Lencioni, and one of his more recent books is about motivation. Uh, I see Jim Nottingham said, too, maybe a personal favorite there, too. But I was listening to one of his podcasts recently, and he mentioned kind of in passing, he said, you know, people never get frustrated with their organization. They never leave their organization because of over-communication. And so as a leader, what we need to do is not not come up with different messages, but repeat our messages so that people truly hear them, you know, figure out what's important and repeat that. And one of the things that I found in COVID was that need for over-communication and for repetition, and so people are scared, they're nervous, their you know, employees at hospitals, at clinics are worried, are they gonna get sick? You know, are, Is their family gonna get sick? Are they gonna be able to continue to work? So people have a lot of feelings and with all that chaos going on, it's not always you know, the perfect time to zone in on a singular message that's delivered. So you've gotta continue to reinforce your communication during times of crisis. We have a client that I think did a wonderful job When COVID really became strong in the Midwest, where they're based, they really started a 7, 10, and 1, so 7 a.m., 10 a.m., 1 p.m., 7 p.m., 10 p.m., 1 a.m., around the clock while they were hitting their surge. And those huddle, huddle groups were for their crisis communication team and then key stakeholders. And so their key stakeholders included a representative from their physician workforce, Represented from their <clears throat> nursing workforce, from their finance, from their human resources, from their communications, and then a senior executive. So, those six functions were really well represented. And all throughout the day, a different rotation of leaders that represented those functional areas plus the crisis team met just to touch base for 15 minutes, to find out what was going on, troubleshoot. And at the end of each of those huddles, communication went out to the staff. This happened to be a a hospital, but they sent out communication through their intranet and through their email system to say, here's what happened at the 7 a.m. huddle. Here's what happened at the 10 a.m. huddle. And sometimes it was nothing more than, you know, we just touched base, the patient count is, you know, unchanged, et cetera, et cetera. But it was that repetition and that over-communication that I think was so helpful. They... I'm knocking on wood here, they seem to have uh, come down from their major surge, and who knows what the future holds. But what they have done is they have kept, they've shifted it to noon, but every day at noon, from 12 until 12.15, even now, and this has been a good 75 days later, they have kept this huddle, and it's live-streamed now, so everyone in the hospital, all stakeholders at home, at the hospital, from their phones, you know, from hospital iPads, can access it. And so for those 15 minutes, it's almost like the world stops at that hospital because even now, people are still nervous. They still have got questions. They may be wanting to move on with their lives a little bit, but there's still a lot of uncertainty about what's going on. And so for those 15 minutes every day, and it's truly Monday through Sunday, you know, even on Saturdays and Sundays, they keep that up and allow that as a communication vehicle, which I think is great. I mean, I think that's one of those things that probably came up out of crisis, but as they continue it, you can see the potential for really long term benefits. So there was fifteen minutes a day.
2: Thank you, thank you, Amy, Craig. Yes. What about you?
0: Well, thank you very much, and thanks for for having me on the panel. Just for context, you know, there are uh, in, in California there are about twelve hundred. Uh, skilled nursing centers all through the state, in in rural areas, and urban areas, and suburban everywhere. We represent about eighty percent of them, uh, and then there's about a thousand uh, uh, ICFs, uh facilities for the with for folks with intellectual disabilities. We represent about half of them, and they're very they're much smaller facilities. I would say, in COVID, though, at least uh, we started understanding very early on. The, the, the risk of COVID because the people we care for in our skilled nursing centers are the most vulnerable anywhere. They are almost uniformly elderly and they are 100% health compromised. Over three, between three and 400,000 people pass through a skilled nursing facility in any given year. Most of them there for just a few months for rehabilitation after a hospital stay. but But they are all health compromised from the get-go uh, and there's about a hundred and between around 120,000 beds in the state so you can see how quickly the turn is we became uh concerned because of what we saw initially happening in washington state uh and, and the washington state was really where the breakout started and it was identified in us in a sniff in washington state we actually put out guidance to our membership in late february and said something is coming here start getting prepared. Uh, and so we started telling them to start, look at issues of, of who comes in and out of the building uh, uh, in terms of visitation, uh, uh, PPE, all those things. But when I, I think it's also important when you look back on it, how little we really knew at the beginning. Uh, and at the beginning, we did not understand that how the, the virus was transmitted at all. We did not understand the importance of the PPE, and we certainly had no testing. So I think this is what we this is what how we we initially got started uh, on this, and then we are the most heavily uh, regulated uh, probably a segment in the healthcare structure, if you will, because we're we're very heavily regulated by both the state and the federal government. Almost hundred uh, uh, percent government paid through Medicare or or Medi-Cal for everyone in our facilities. So, uh, you know, we, we basically already started started dealing with state regulators very early on too. Um, so that, that's essentially, we started putting out more guidance, more training uh, for our membership, uh, tried to make sure that we, we, we understood where the state and where the federal governments were going. I'll talk a little bit about that uh, uh, in, in a moment with, with maybe one of the follow-up questions. But I think what we were concerned about—we knew this was not going to be good—and I think we were very concerned in part because uh, it was pretty clear the state was trying to get a handle on it, but was really prioritizing the hospitals initially, understandably. Uh, uh, so we we were kind of fighting constantly at the beginning there to say you got to really put a priority on this population because of its vulnerability.
2: Thank you, Craig. And as we know, it. It's very important to have advocates or be an advocate.
1: Thank you for joining us today. That was an excerpt from this year's Rural Health Conference. Our annual conference brings together leaders in rural health care with policy advisors, community leaders, and other forward thinkers to gain a better understanding of what's happening across today's rural health care ecosystem. The full conference, including video, available on demand in our website in our new member center. If you're not yet a CSRHA member, please consider joining today. Your contribution and support is greatly appreciated. You can join by going to our website, csrha.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review. It helps us get the word out about the show and lets us pursue other projects like this in the future. Thank you again for joining us today.